There are moments when it feels like time stands still. But when those moments turn into days, months, years, we start to wonder if life will ever begin again. It is written that there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the sun. Now is the time. Well, good morning, Christ the King. If I haven't met you before, my name is Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we've been going through this sermon series called Now is the Time, where we're taking our time through Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And today we're going to be going through the verse, a time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to keep and a time to throw away. And I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> is it a time to keep or is it time to throw away? So here's what I need from you. If you think that it's a time to keep, go ahead and cheer like Gino just threw a touchdown. Go ahead right now. Yeah! And here's, we might gain some followers on this one. If you think it's a time to throw away, you will never have this opportunity again in church. I need you to boo as loudly as you can right now. Boo! And for our, oh, I heard some young hurt there. <laughs> and if you're online, go ahead and do the same thing. If you think it's a time to, to keep, go ahead and put some uh, emojis on there and say keep. And if you think that it's a time to throw away, type Gino, who is our backup, I'm sorry, starting quarterback, who we are very excited about. I feel good. <laughs> what, a, what a good intro. And I feel so good that I think we should pray as we get, enter into uh, the Word of God. So would you please pray with me? Lord, thank you so much. God, as I've been reading through this, I am so grateful for the gift of wisdom that you gave to your son Solomon. We are still reading his words. Lord, today would they read us Holy Spirit, you are the teacher. Would we hear your voice? You are the counselor. Would you do work in our hearts? And you are the sanctifier. Lord, it is your job to make us more like you. And you are very good at your job. Would you just help us to be sensitive to your spirit? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you. Well, we're going through Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and I'm going to read it all here in just a minute. And I want to highlight something. This is Hebrew meditative literature, which just means that you're supposed to read it over and over and over again. Because there are layers of meaning to this. And it's meant to go, wait, what? How does this, how does this all work? And something significant has stood out to me as I've read it, read it over the last few months. There are 28 times that... Solomon lays out in this this portion of scripture time for this a time for that 28 times There's only two That happen to us That happen to everyone in this room or online whether we want them to or not Everything else we happen to it We have choice we, we can make decisions in this and i'm going to read it and then we'll talk about that in a little bit a time for everything. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. 
time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. So both huggers and non-huggers have a verse. A time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Did you catch it? A time to be born and a time to die. Birth and death are both major themes in the book of Ecclesiastes. These happen to us whether we want them to or not. Everything else involves action. We happen to them. And here's, here's an aha. You and I have God-given power. Not like the force or anything super mystical, but we have choice. We have creativity. We have a will. We can make these things happen. You have the power to plant, to kill, to heal, to tear, mend, and on and on. There's some scary things that are on this list, aren't there, that we have experienced recently. You have the power to do them, but Solomon says there is a time for them. And it can be awful when these things happen outside of the right time. Solomon is saying that given your birth and your death, the time that you have to choose, the time where you have will, creativity, and influence, you have choices to make. And you have to know what time it is. Given the time we have, we have to know what time it is. We have to know what time it is, but the problem is, is that we're bad at it. Now let me give you an example. A while ago, I was sitting down with a friend, and my friend works in a tough industry where burnout is a real threat, and it happens. And so teamwork, friendship, and camaraderie are vitally important and even precious. And my friend had a coworker for over 10 years and, and someone close, like they've helped each other move. And all of a sudden, my friend's coworker just quit, just resigned. No email, no text, no two-week notice, nothing. Just quit. So I'm talking to my friend, and I said, well, how are you doing with all that? One cup of coffee. And he said, I'm, I'm angry. I'm pretty upset. This isn't okay. I'm, I'm super mad. Then half of that cup of coffee in, as we're just talking about it, his eyes pop open wide and his jaw drops and he says, I feel abandoned. Ryan, I'm adopted. This pain goes way back church, I need to tell you what just happened there. My friend started with, it's a time to kill, this is not okay, to, nope, it's a time to heal. And all that took was a half a cup of coffee and a conversation. We have to know what time it is. Given the time we have, we have to know what time it is. This brings us to our first point this morning. Unresolved hurt 
limits our ability to know what time it is. Unresolved hurt limits our ability to know what time it is. This also plays out in families through the generations. A few years ago, my son was five years old and over at my parents' house, and he was on my dad's knee, and my son was like belly laughing and just, just lost in the moment and just feeling his tummy, laughing so hard. My dad was laughing. Tears are coming down his face. And it was, it was beautiful. It was awesome. It's just one of those precious moments where we are fully in the present. And then I had a thought. Now, before I tell you what that thought was, I need to give you some background. You see, every abuse that you can think of or name is one generation removed from me. My dad's father looked my dad in the eye and with accuracy said, this is what I would have rather done and conceive you. I resent all of you. I don't like you. I'm sad that you're my son and you have been a constant source of disappointment. I don't like you. My dad's whole childhood, that's the message that he got. So much so that my dad didn't even spend the first two years of his life in the home. That, get the kid out of here, I can't listen to him. He's crying too much, get him out of here. So when my son is laughing on my dad's lap, this was special. And I say, hey, dad, this is awesome. Let me ask you a question, though. What was life like when you were five? And then it was so quick, so quick. My dad's countenance just changed. He just closed right off, and he, he had the thousand-yard stare. And then he started to shake. And then he started to weep. And then he started to mumble, and I had a really hard time understanding him. These are all signs and evidence of trauma. And he says, you have no idea. You have no idea. And that's what I want to talk about today. When I think about a time to be born and a time to die, a time to keep and a time to throw away, I think of my son on my dad's lap, representing birth and death, pain and healing through the generations. My dad has mid-late stage dementia now, and he's in his last chapter of his life. And my son is just starting his first couple of chapters in her life, his life. How do we know what to keep and what to throw away through the generations? Now, I didn't mean to do that to my dad. It was a great moment, and I just tanked it. Like, oh, whatever. That was really dumb. But I went up to my dad, put my hand on his shoulder, and said, Hey, Dad, you're absolutely right. Because of you, I have no idea what that was like. Thank you. But let me ask you a question. What do you think your grandson's experience is as a five-year-old? And his eyes got wide and his jaw dropped. And he said, I had no idea. I had no idea. My dad, to me, is a Moses figure in that he left abuse. He left, he left Egypt for the sake of his family. 
And the Bible actually has a lot to say about this, about what to keep and what to throw away through the generations. And perhaps no one in the Bible uh, did that better than Moses. Now, I know for, the, for those of you in the room, you would say, well, actually, Ryan, Jesus did it better than Moses. I would say, yeah, well, Jesus is the cheat code. <laughs> We're going to talk about Moses. So I want to take you to a, a real highlight in the biblical story. This, if, if we're going to make uh, a Mount Rushmore of biblical scenes, this is on there, where walls of water on either side, Moses is delivering the people of Israel through Egypt. Walls of water, Egypt's behind him, uh, Moses is leading, and Israel's walking through on dry ground. It's an incredible scene. It's incredible. Lots of movies. Uh, even God himself says, this is going to be a big one. They're going to talk about this forever. Here's what's crazy about that. Within three days of that iconic delivery, deliverance scene, the people of Israel accuse Moses of trying to kill them. Now, when you read this, it's like satire. It's like a bad joke. Like, what? What in the world? And I'd like to picture Moses' face just confused. Like, what? Like, if you're going to bring accusation or complain against Moses, you know, hey, it, you know, you got a bit of a temper. That, that, that's become an issue, or, you know, it doesn't seem like you got a plan. Moses, what, what are we doing? What's the plan? Like, these sorts of criticisms we kind of understand. But trying to kill them? How weird. What an oddly precise accusation. And again, I'm thinking about my dad as a Moses figure and through this, and then and I'm sitting in the discomfort of these accusations, and then it occurs to me. They're not talking to Moses. They're talking to Pharaoh. Israel doesn't know what time it is. This is exactly what that looks like. You see, for 400 years, up to three days ago, Moses was actually trying to kill them and succeeding to a large extent. But now, you've got this people group that is super hurt, don't know what to do, and they're just going to point their frustration, their hurt, their damage to the person in front of them, to Moses. Israel doesn't know what time it is. Do you know what we call it when people keep reliving their past when they're triggered? When past experiences become so present it becomes debilitating? It's called trauma. It's called post-traumatic stress disorder. It's real. And it's right there in the scriptures. This is a traumatized people. And I don't want to rewrite the story here and, 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 and make them out to be someone they're not. Nowhere, else, nowhere in the Bible is this generation of people regarded fondly. And that's tough. They are referenced as stubborn, as stiff-necked, lacking faith, disobedient. The rest of the Bible says, don't be like this generation. But I want to point something out. Nowhere in the Bible are they faulted for their hurt and their trauma and their time in Egypt? Here's the takeaway. Your hurt may or may not be your fault, but it is your responsibility. This is a really tough word, and I'm going to say it again. Your hurt may or may not be your fault, but it is your responsibility. Rick Warren puts a positive spin on this, and he says, your greatest ministry will come out of your deepest 
pain. Now that's processed hurt and trauma, right? When we, when we deal with it, when we engage in what to keep and what to throw away. But your greatest ministry will come out of your deepest pain. Israel's failure wasn't their damage. It wasn't their hurt or trauma. It was that they failed to take responsibility for their stuff, for their hurt, and their failure to follow God. So much so that when they go up to the promised land and they get the reports back, all they see and hear is slavery, abuse, tyranny, oppression. That's not actually what's in head. That's what's behind. They're lost in time. Israel doesn't know what time it is, and they're unable to keep and to throw away. So much so that it prevents them from entering into the promised land. God goes up to them and says, nope, this isn't going to work. I can't let you in. It's not going to be good for you. It won't be good for you, and it won't be good for the land. We're going to go for a walk. For those of you that know, a little spoiler alert, that walk lasted 40 years. Have you ever heard the phrase, time heals all wounds? You know that's not actually true, right? That if that were true, there'd be no such thing as bitterness. That it's time plus forgiveness. Time plus engagement. Time plus some of the other things that we're talking about. That's what leads to healing. So 40 years later, Israel is up against the promised land again. And Moses and God are really paying attention. Is this people ready? And this is a pretty cool scene. Uh, this is in the book of Numbers, everybody's favorite. Uh, Numbers and Leviticus is where I'm pulling most of my texts today. And if you, uh, if you have an annual Bible reading plan, this is where you stop, generally. There's a lot of rules and a lot of what does this mean. Um, but that's where we are today. Three tribes go up to Moses and they say, Hey Moses, how about you give us this land over here on this side instead? And Moses flips out. Moses, for three paragraphs, flips out on this people. Now, it's important to remember, this is the same Moses who they thought was trying to kill them. But Israel's different at this point, And Moses has a different experience. So, hey, Moses, can we have this land over here? What, what, would, you, what would you think about that? And Moses flips out, and he says, Have you learned nothing? That's my best Moses impression. It's pretty good. Been working on it. Have you learned nothing? And then he just rants. And so right now I want to give you four outward signs of health that demonstrate that someone knows what time it is. And this is from Numbers 32, which you can, you're free to go back and look at. But this time this people is different. Israel has emotional flexibility and range. Moses comes at them with all of this energy. And again, they, they, they thought this guy was trying to kill them. And they're able to say, hey, buddy. Hey, buddy. How's it going? How was your night? What's going on? It looks like you're angry, Moses. They're able to attune to him, to engage, and to help settle the, the situation down. They have emotional range and flexibility, and they don't take the bait from Moses. Right? Moses is coming at them with some negative energy. And before, they would have just flipped the tables over again and say, yeah, well, you. And it just would have escalated. That's been their history. But now we're off to a different start. Number two, they don't minimize or forget their past. It's integrated. This is super important because 
So often, when we experience failure, we just want to forget it and shut it down. I will never do that again. We are never going to talk about it. This is done. And we try to kill it, except it doesn't ever die. It's like in addiction circles, we call it a dry drunk. Yeah, you're not drinking anymore, but the reason you're drinking is still there. Right? You haven't integrated your past, your history. And so Moses says, have you learned nothing? And they said, hey, Moses, actually, we have learned. You're totally right. We did all of those things that you're talking about. And we're really sorry. But here's what we've learned, right? And they're able to engage in that conversation. This is very trust-building. Number three, Israel is able to ask for what it is that they want. They're able to acknowledge and integrate their past. They're able to be present. And they're able to look forward a little bit and say, you know what I want? You know what I want, Moses? That land right there is perfect for all of our livestock. Yeah, the stuff over there, we could figure it out, but why not right here? Why not, why not what's right in front of us? And they're able to, number four, make a plan, and they're able to negotiate. Hey, Moses, how about this? How about we clear this out, set up temporary structure, then we go with you and everybody else, clear the land, we come back out. Does this address your concerns? And Moses says, uh, yeah, I think that would be fine. Right? This is a completely new people group. So again, time alone does not heal all wounds, but time plus other healing elements does. So what happened in the desert that produced a different people, a different people that God was able to say, no, you guys are ready to go take this new land? And that's what I want to share with you. This is productive um, desert activities that helped Israel process their pain, be more present, and be more able to choose what to keep and what to throw away. Number one, they gathered manna every day. You guys know what manna is? No, you don't. Nobody knows what it is. Manna means, what is it? Like, nobody knows what it is. The Bible kind of describes it. It says it's kind of like some ground coriander and flax, and it's like, we don't know. We don't know what it is. We're going to call it that, actually. We're going to call it, we don't know. Manna means, what is it? But God would provide manna every morning. Every morning it would do, and there would be God's fresh provision every day. Every day. And Israel had to go out every day and gather their food. It fed them. This is what it did for them. It fed them. It actually nourished their bodies. And it reminded them that, you know what? You're in the desert still. And I need you to be in the desert. Psychologist Jordan Peterson says, one doesn't go straight from Egypt into the promised land. You have to go through the desert. And the greater the Egypt, the greater the desert. This was a reminder. It wasn't mockery. It was just reminding you of where you are. You are still in the desert. Manna only happened in the desert. And I'd love to make some big, grandiose, spiritual aha about that. It's, I can't, though. But it, it, it is worth noticing that manna only happened in the desert, reminding them of where they're at. What does gathering manna do for you? God provided something for you, but you have to go out and get it every day. Every day. This is a reminder that God is with you every day. And it helped Israel form habits 
and rhythms and practices and Sabbath and engaging in all of these rhythms every single day. It it reminds us of God's nearness and provision, these spiritual practices of Bible reading and prayer and what does it mean for me to help sensitize, sensitize myself to God's spirit. It helps us know what time it is and to be present. They gathered manna. Number two, they traveled together. Walking through the desert for 40 years, what would you do? You know what I'm doing? I'm talking to people. I'm like, I'm like 40 years of manna. Man, we have to get creative here. And here's something that I was thinking about. So it said that manna would come like the dew in the morning and then evaporate with, with the heat of the day. That means that there were different stages of manna, right? That as it came, I'm setting my alarm clock for 4.30 and I'm gathering the 4.30 manna and I'm doing it at 5.30 and then 6.30. I'm saying, well, you know what? This stuff's kind of sloppy. I kind of like the 7 o'clock stuff a little better. And then I'm talking to my neighbor and I say, hey, Grant, it looks like you slept in. looks like you got the 9.30 manna. Man, tell you what, nothing beats the 6. Nothing beats the 6. What would you trade for it? Would you... Any trade ideas? He would tell me to mind my business. <laughs> Not a morning person. But they traveled together. Here's what it did. It helped form them as a people. And Grant talked about it a little bit this morning already. It helped them process. It helped them laugh together. What do you think they're talking about? They're talking about the plagues. They're talking about their failures. They're talking about Moses. They're engaging in relationship. Like I was talking about about that coffee with my friend. There's nothing special or magical happening there. We're just talking and engaging. Here's what it does for us. It helps us become a people. The church is God's idea. There's no getting around the church. His body. And we have to be connected to it or we die. I'm going to make an important point around this. If you and I were standing next to each other and we look ahead of us and witness a horrible accident where there's, there's loss, it's bad. The number one differentiator as to whether or not you or I graduate from grief into trauma are the relational connections we have. Do you have people that you can process with, that you can laugh with, that you can cry with, that you can be together with? It is that important. So number one, they gathered manna. Number two, they traveled together. And number three, this one's weird. This one's weird. But they looked at the snake. Israel looked at the snake. I'm going to read a weird story. If you've never heard this before, man, am I excited for you. This is in Numbers chapter 21. Then the people of Israel sent out from Mount Hor, taking the road by the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. That's important because this is their nearing where they failed. They are reminded of their failure. But the people grew impatient with the long journey... And they began to speak against God and Moses. You can feel the tension here. They're angsting. They're, they're getting triggered. This is bad. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained again. There's nothing to eat here and nothing to drink. And we hate this horrible manna. Church, 
They sound like my kids. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you where there's nothing to eat here? And then you're like startled where you open the fridge and you're like, well, you had leftovers of this same meal last night, but today it's gross. It's been said that parenting is like buying four bananas and watching them all get eaten in one day. Then buying eight bananas and watching them rot on your counter because nobody likes bananas. <laughs> Israel is not making sense here. Right? There's nothing to eat. And we hate this horrible manna. So they're kind of acknowledging, yeah, this is ridiculous, but I'm so mad. I told you a little bit about my dad's history and his upbringing. And I glossed over it, but I need to tell you it was bad. It was bad. There was tragedy. There was, there, it was a tough home to grow up in. So much so that there are still consequences today where just some limps and scars seem like they're going to last until the next life. And my dad, when I was, I don't know, a teenager, you know, he would get triggered. And I have so much more space for this now as a dad for life can just get hard. And if you've got some baggage, this is, it just, it's just tough. But he would get triggered and he would act out. And it's like nothing illegal or tense, like no need to call the police. But it was loud and it was tense and it was like angsty. And I'm, you know, 15 and ancient. I've got my own stuff. And I would say, how old are you? You need to figure this out. You're better than this, or you're supposed to be better than this. And they really like it when you point, right? And what you need to do is you just need to say, you need to calm down. And you need to get the veins popping. It works every time. And it would escalate. And it turns out, that how old are you is exactly the right question in those moments. What else is going on? What time is it? What's going on in your life right now? And I'm going to say this out of my own failure, but it is better to ask the wrong question at the right, with the right heart than it is to ask the right question with the wrong heart. I'm going to say that again. It is better to ask the wrong question with the right heart than to ask the right questions with the wrong heart. It is so important to be like Israel that second time around and say, hey, it's okay. What's going on? So Israel is triggered in this moment, and they're acting out. And again, they're not taking responsibility. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people. And many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord takes away the snakes. Moses, we did it again. And we're sorry. We did it again and we're sorry. So Moses prayed for the people. Now this is where the story gets weird. Because if you or I were in charge, here's what would happen. We'd take away the snakes. Done. Right? But that's not what God does. Then the Lord told Moses, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. And all who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. 
then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Israel had to look at an image of the very thing that was killing them, of the very thing that was creating terror in their life. This is such an iconic scene that it's the symbol of the medical industry, right? The snake wrapped around the pole. That's where the story's from, or that's where the symbol is from. In turning towards the snake, Israel had to acknowledge their own need for salvation. They could not do this on their own. They had to acknowledge that this punishment, though it felt harsh, was just. This is just. They had repeatedly disregarded God's blessings, provision, his appeals, and his warnings. And the snakes were a result of God, of Israel continuing to do life on their own terms. Forming a God out of their own image instead of being formed in the image of God. They were telling God, we're going to do this on our own terms. Turning towards and looking at the snake is an acknowledgement that I have contributed to my own demise. Turning towards the snake is a turn towards reality. It's truth. So what did turning towards the snake do for Israel? It healed them of their poison. And it helped them acknowledge their error. What does turning towards do for us? It heals us of our poison as well and helps us know with painful clarity how deep the bite actually goes. But here's what it also does. It gives us the power of choice again. That when I know where this is coming from and how deep this actually goes, I have more power to choose what to keep and what to throw away. Jesus said this in John chapter 3. And Moses, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. I'm going to invite my friend Andy out here, and I want to read First Peter, who said this. He never sinned. That is Jesus. Jesus never sinned nor deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. By his wounds, you are healed. Church, we have to turn and we have to look at him if we're going to be healed. And in turning towards him and engaging in these desert practices of gathering, of reminding ourselves of God's presence and engaging in community who can help us know what time it is, we are better able to choose what to keep and what to throw away. Let me pray for you.
Jesus, I'm reminded of your invitation where you say, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden that I give you is light. So Lord, I see you not with arms stretched wide open, for come to me, all of you, but narrow, saying, come to me, all of you. All of you. All of the parts of you that you know about, all of the parts of you that you hide, that you bury, bring all of you. Bring all of you to me, and I will give you rest. Jesus, would that be our experience with you? Would you help us to turn? We pray this in Jesus' name.